I actually feel pretty good about that evolution of myself because it it means to me um, that I do feel a greater sense of belonging, not just in myself in this world, but also in my communities, in the running community, in the sports community. You know, I've wanted for so long to be seen as the athlete and the person that I am and not just the trans athlete and not just you know, um, not just any one thing, you know, I want to be able to show up in the wholeness of who I am and be celebrated for all of it. And I've felt a little closer to that in recent years. And although it's kind of slipping away, maybe I'll just have like the most um, audacious season in 2023 with all this anger, <laughs> this legislative anger. But, um, you know, like I, it, it just feels different now, which is awesome because that's the goal and the hope for anybody, I think, is to continue to grow and evolve. everyone i'm your host mario fraioli and you are listening to the morning shakeout podcast every week on this show i try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running this week's episode is with chris Mosier. chris is an incredible athlete he's a hall of fame triathlete an all-american do athlete a six-time member of Team USA, and a two-time national champion and Olympic trials qualifier in race walking. He's also a Nike-sponsored athlete who, in 2015, became the first known transgender man to represent the United States in international competition. Beyond all that, however, Chris is an incredible person who knows himself better than nearly anyone I've ever met and he's an advocate, inspiration, mentor, and a role model to so many, myself included. In this wide-ranging conversation, Chris and I talked about his relationship to sport and how that's evolved throughout his life. We discussed identity and how he shows up in the different communities that he belongs to, as well as why he doesn't want to be seen in any one particular type of way. Chris told me about navigating the world now as a white male and how that perspective differs from what he experienced earlier in his life, how we can all be allies and advocates for equal rights in sports and society, and so, so much more. Before we get into this one, I'd like to thank my longtime partner, New Balance, for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I have been waiting a long time to tell you about the new Fuel Cell Rebel V3, and I am thrilled that I can finally spout off about it. I sang the praises of the second edition of this shoe, and for good reason. It's a fast, super fun shoe that I just really love to run in. The new Rebel V3 is everything that I enjoyed about its predecessor, but with a more supportive upper, a little more cushion underfoot, and a more durable outsole. What it doesn't have is much more weight, checking in at under 8 ounces, making it a great go-fast shoe for tempo runs, track workouts, and interval sessions on the road. Also, like its predecessor, it does not have a carbon plate and will allow your foot to move naturally and without influence. Out of the box, it fits like a glove, and I can already tell that its spot in my rotation is not under threat. The Fuel Cell Rebel V3 is available in both men's and women's sizes on NewBalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. This episode is also brought to you by Arena. If you don't have time or just don't want to go to the gym, 
Arena is a serious and super efficient strength training solution. I've been using my Arena unit for a few weeks now, and I love this thing. It's a stealthy looking metal plyo box with a cable based resistance system that produces up to 200 pounds of weight, but only weighs 50 pounds. It includes all the accessories you need to train movement with resistance in all directions, as well as strengthen and stabilize your muscles without putting extra strain on joints or causing imbalances. I particularly like the hip belt, which allows me to do heavy squats, lunges, and calf raises to improve lower body strength and stability without putting load and strain on my back. What I love most about the arena, however, is I don't have to think about it. I just find the workout that I want to do on the Go Arena app, and it counts my reps, remembers my weight, and guides me through the workout. Arena has also partnered with top Masters runner Ken Rideout, who I coach, as well as strength coach Todd Anderson, who is a colleague and co-collaborator of mine, to develop a strength program specifically for runners that you can find on the Go Arena app right now. These workouts will help you improve your movement quality, build a strong foundational base as a runner through stability and core strength, develop speed and power, make you more resistant to injury, and get you ready for race day. Try out an arena today by going to arena.fit. That's arena.fit and seeing if there is a unit that you can demo near you, or you can sign up for a virtual demo and see how much of a game changer arena is. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy this wonderful and important conversation between me and the incredible Chris Mosier. All right, Chris Mosier, this is a unique episode because in the 200 plus guests that I've had on the show to this point, you're one of only a small handful of multi-sport athletes, and I believe the first and only race walker. It is a real <laughs> honor to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you. Really happy to be here with you. I want to start on the whole race walking thing, because as I was prepping for this show, I saw that you had competed in... I mean, we'll call it the 2020 trials, even though it was for the 2021 games in the 50K, which funny enough, like weird uh, connection was held in Santee, California on a very short loop. And the person who hosts that event, his name is Tracy Sunland and is a former colleague of mine at the competitor group. And it literally starts and finishes outside his house, I think. Um, he's a huge, huge supporter of race walking. But let's let's start with that because you are an accomplished do athlete, triathlete. You're also a runner. I mean, you do a, a lot of things. And race walking is relatively new. And you qualified and competed in the Olympic trials, which only 15 people get to do. And before like competing there and even qualifying, you hadn't done a lot of race walking. I think you'd been at it for, what, maybe a year, uh, two at, at the most? Eight like months. Just, Eight months. <laughs> yeah. how, how does one go from running in multi-sport to race walking, which is, I guess, a cousin of those sports, but definitely a different set of demands. 
a very distant cousin, and I would say it's a hope and a dream. That's really <laughs> what got me there. Um, you know, the, the story of how I sort of ended up in race walking is pretty funny. So I live in and train in Chicago now, and I had a teammate at the gym that I coach at and that I train at who was the number five ranked race walker in the country at the time. And I didn't quite know that he was trying to recruit anyone who he could to the sport, but he approached me one day and said, have you ever thought about race walking? And I laughed and said, no, because I hadn't. It never crossed my mind. And he said, I think you'd be really good at it. And that was kind of, <laughs> I was like, oh, say more. <laughs> tell me, tell me how I might be good at something. And, um, you know, we had a couple of conversations. He told me about his experiences in race walking, which, as you mentioned, you know, is, is a group of really enthusiastic, um, tight knit community, even, you know, obviously even smaller than the running community. But think about all the amazing things that you love about the running community and just like make that a, mm -hmm. a, a smaller neighborhood. And, I really kind of fell in love with the idea of learning something new. So as you mentioned, you know, I, I, w I just made Team USA in duathlon in April of that year. And I think in May I started race walking and I did three races leading up to it and, you know, was able to secure the 12th place ranking <laughs> in order to compete in the trials. So it was a really uh, short runway that I had. and. I just really like the experience of being an adult and trying and learning something new because running and triathlon and duathlon, I'm at a point where I occasionally learn more new information, but right. for the most part, you know, it's the, the learning curve is, is it's pretty small at this point, you know, it's little things that can make differences, but there was so much to learn and so much room for growth in race walking. And that was really exciting. Yeah. The coach in me is super curious how you make that shift. As you mentioned, there was an enthusiasm. They're like, Oh, someone thinks I could be good <laughs> at this. Um, let's explore it a little bit further. But I mean, I have to imagine from a training standpoint, it's very different from training as a traditional runner, you know, certainly as a, as a do athlete, like what was, what was that like for you? So I had a couple of lessons with Pablo, who's my friend, mm -hmm. uh, and he kind of showed me technique. I dug into whatever, you know, resources that I could find and it, it felt very much like getting into running or getting into triathlon of just like that deep dive into all, the entire YouTube rabbit hole of any content <laughs> that exists, any book, which there aren't really any, uh, there, there are a few now since I started race walking, but, um, you know, just, it was really difficult to find information. So I was reaching out to people in the community, asking them for tips and advice, sending people videos of my form, trying to get advice because there weren't a lot of race walkers that I could be around here in Chicago. And then the other thing is just that, you know, the technique, it's, it's a lot more like swimming, I think, than like running in, I could run and space out and I could do my intervals and hit my paces and, and not really pay close attention at this point in my career, not having to do that constant check-in. Whereas when I'm in the pool, it is just an endless loop of things that I have to pay attention to. I just find the technique of swimming so much more challenging and so many different things for me to pay attention to that aren't second nature like running is. So race walking is very much like that. It's very form based. And I would say there were two really, really difficult things about it. First was not breaking out into a run <laughs> where I was like, you know, I have to keep my legs straight. I have to keep this, this walking form going, but I know I would be so much faster if I just started running. So 
holding back on that part was the hardest. And then actually finding a place in the city to, to race walk outside and not be harassed was actually the other hardest thing. So I ended up doing most of my training in a cemetery on a loop, loop. because I was – uh, you know, anytime I'd be outside, if I'd be along the lakeshore path or walking past Northwestern University, and you know, there's a couple of paths that I that I typically do for longer runs, and I would just have you know the most ridiculous comments, looks, stares, oh, and I can imagine. it just you know, and, and it's not quite the same to do it on a treadmill because of the way you have to propel yourself. So you know, very similar to running, it's just not. It's a different body feel on a treadmill versus outside. Yeah, probably good practice too for the actual competition itself because a lot of those races are on very short loops. I think the Olympic trials is less than 2K loop and you're doing 50K on that thing. So that's like over and over and over again. Yeah, and that's by design because there are people watching your form the entire time. And so you have judges and they have penalties for breaking form. And and that becomes particularly important in the second half of the race as people fatigue. And there were people at the trials that got kicked out for form Mm -hmm. violations that that actually got three penalties and were removed from the race. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting and different experience. I want to go deeper into your athletic background in a bit, but a lot of runners will go to duathlon or triathlon because running is very hard on their body. So just introducing that variety, getting on the bike, getting in the pool, it takes off some of the stress on your hips and joints and ankles, like all the things that will be barking at you when you're running a lot. And Mm. race walking strikes me as the exact opposite of that. I mean, I've (laughs) been around the sport a bit and I've watched it and I'm like, I have a ton of respect for these people because that looks really freaking hard on the body. It's a very unnatural motion. I mean, as you said, you have to have one foot on the ground at all times. You essentially have to heel strike, which Mm -hmm. makes it pretty tough and just sends impact forces up your body. What was that like for you coming from this multi-sport background where, you know, you distributed that intensity and that stress a little differently and here, you know, you're race walking and maybe you mixed it up with other stuff on the in-between days, but when you're actually doing it, like that just strikes me as a as a huge toll on the body. Yeah, it was over a decade of doing multi-sport triathlon, duathlon without injury. And literally within one year of doing race walking, I both tore my meniscus and uh, tore my hip labrum and had hip surgery at the end of last year. And so, you know, those two injuries were directly related. But I actually pulled out of the Olympic trials because of the right. torn meniscus. Um and, you know, that was a heartbreaking experience, but still so incredible to even make it to the starting line. Um, sad. It was my first DNF and also my first really major injury mm-hmm. from from racing. Aside from a few bike crashes uh, from triathlon, this was really the most major one. And it happened right – that happened right at the beginning of COVID. And so mm-hmm. PT offices were shut down. You know, my doctors weren't doing things. So I really rehabbed my knee by myself, but the hip injury kind of came later on. And I'm sure that that is directly related just to the the very unnatural movement of that. Um, obviously, there are people who race walk as their entire athletic career and have bodies for it. And I think mine just uh, really partly probably because of my form. And maybe because of my past athletic history, just uh, that was what did me in. Yeah. So where are you at right now? Have you been able to get healthy post-surgery and back to a level of training that you were doing prior? Like, help me to understand where Chris Mosier's at right now, late 2022. 
Yeah, yes and no. So I found that the hip surgery recovery actually took a lot longer yeah. than I thought it would. Part of it is, you know, as my PT said, I'm not a spring chicken. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I did, I, I overestimated my ability to heal and get back out there. And just, it just took a long time to get back to running. I mean, they had me on a bike the very next morning. Mm -hmm. Obviously not a, a real workout, but uh, I kept kept some movement, but it took a long time to feel that strength and then feel the speed come back. And it did in the lead up to the Chicago Marathon, which just recently happened. And uh, about uh, halfway through that training cycle, I got COVID and was out for about uh, two weeks and then had a vacation planned where I was out for another 10 days. So it was a full three weeks off. And when I came back, I just uh, started to ramp slowly and I just felt a, a huge setback with my hip. And so I'm now in this position where I hadn't been making all this progress and now I've kind of re-triggered some inflammation or some injury to it. And we're back in PT trying to figure it out. So fortunately and unfortunately for me, all of the races that I wanted to do this year were canceled, including uh, or canceled or postponed or, you know, otherwise didn't didn't happen for me. So world championship, national championship. Uh, race in Romania, you know, all of these things got canceled and it, it bought me some time to focus on my recovery. Um, you know, now it's been a lot, of, it's been a while out of racing. And so I'm really eager to get back, you know, especially marathon season here in the fall in the United mm -hmm. States between Chicago and New York, that energy, that feeling, that excitement around marathon time, even though marathon is not my favorite, my favorite event to personally do just the energy of these, of these, uh, events is just so incredible that I'm really, really excited about what 2023 is going to bring. Yeah. I'm with you on that, man. I mean, uh, I've run. I don't know, 15 marathons at this point, as we were talking about before we hit record on this, I was in Chicago this past weekend and you're like, well, how, how was it? And I'm like, great. Cause I didn't actually have to run the thing, but being <laughs> around the race and the energy and the, and the people in the community, uh, was so cool. And, you know, just got me excited to be in New York again, where I'm not running. Uh, but I am going to train for Boston in the spring. And I'm like, yeah, it's cool to be kind of in that environment and just soaking up that energy. So I'm glad to hear you're in a good place. Last question on this front. Is there more race walking in your future? Is that something you want to get back to, even though it did like screw up your body uh, when you initially jumped into it? I feel like I'm at a little bit of a crossroads here. Okay. I really love duathlon and triathlon, and I'm sure like I, I definitely have more long course triathlon racing in my future. I definitely have more short course duathlon and maybe long course. Um, but I, you know, I really want to get back to. Uh, solid running races. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to dabble in some all their multi-sport races. And then also just the race walking was really exciting for me. And I'm not sure that my body can handle it now, but I, I think that I will give it a, another, another try. You know, I, I really am not attached to having to have one. My identity is not specifically as do athlete or triathlete. I've always been a multi-sport athlete. I love to dip and dabble. And I think that's kind of what has kept me in sports for so long is that if, if running gets a little bit stagnant, I can just go over to biking. You know, I can mo move over to do athlon. And when that's no longer exciting, challenge myself on the swim again, I can get back in the water and do triathlons. And so I, I like to have those options and I'm not really sure, you know, which will, it probably depends on a number of factors, my health probably being number one. Yeah. Have you ever done an ultra marathon, just pure running? I have. Yes, I have. Uh, I've done the Knickerbocker in New York City, which was nine laps around Central Park. Okay. Uh, that was a, a 60K. I've done self-supported uh, runs around Manhattan in mm -hmm. Central Park, or Manhattan in New York City. Uh, and I think that that might actually be it. Yeah. 
couple okay. of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's some great ones right there in Chicago where you're based, right along the lakefront. At some point, maybe I can coerce you to come out to California, get on the trails, which is going to be tough to train for where you are, but just show you some beautiful terrain out here, which is challenging in a very different way. But that would be super cool. Yeah, if I had access to the trails, I would be out there every day. I can't. I would. I would probably need a, a coach to stop me because <laughs> I think that is, uh, you know, one of the most um, wonderful parts of any day is to be out on the trails. Yeah, you mentioned when you got into race walking that the community was very welcoming, and I, I want to dig into this with you because you know you're coming into that particular discipline from a multi sport background, which, as we talked about, kind of a distant cousin of race walking, but you're also a trans athlete and you're a recognizable trans athlete. What was that like for you to, I mean, you're kind of bouncing in and out of new spaces all of the time, but to come into race walking, which is a small, very tight knit and a largely misunderstood community, but to come in as, as a newbie, especially someone who's, you know, showing some promise. I'd love to just get a, an insight as to what that was like for you. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. You know, I had my, showed up to my first local race and it was, uh, I think it was a 5k and, you know, just to dabble in it, didn't tell anybody that I was doing it except for Pablo and showed up, you know, just to, just to see what I could do and give it a shot to see if I liked it. And I just found that everyone was just so friendly, which, um, you know, not saying that runners aren't friendly, but right. literally every single person at that race was like, hey, introducing themselves. They all knew each other. They all had so much respect and love for each other. And it was just like being at a family reunion. It was like uh, really interesting to come in as an outsider and see how they were just like, oh, we love it when people join our sport. We want more people to be a part of this sport. And that to me is what I want to do in running and triathlon and duathlon. I want everyone who has a desire to be in the sport to feel like they're welcome and like that they like they belong. And so, you know, I've, I just thought that that was such a reflection of the community, but also um, directly reflected my values and what I want to bring to the sport. And so I just felt very welcoming. One of my funniest moments, I think, was in the qualifier for the Olympic trials that one of the guys uh, race walking next to me, and I don't think that I had ever told him that I'm trans, but um, he's like, so was it harder for you to come out as trans or come out as a race walker? <laughs> and you know, the, 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 <laughs> I thought it was so funny. You know, it's just like the perfect question while we're, while we're in the middle of the race. And there was a small group of, of guys around me. Um, you know, we were hanging together. There's, you, you can totally draft. There's no drafting in race walking. You're not going fast enough, but you know, a big pack of, of people. And I, my answer was, I think, you know, it, it was actually pretty hard at this point to come out as a race walker. I was very quiet about it. I did not tell a lot of people that I was training for this. I was just, I wanted to have something for myself. And also there was this sort of like um, weird fear that I had about people's perceptions of it. Cause like you said, it is a little bit of a, a, a fringe and odd sport. You know, I think people think about mall walking. They think about like moms, right. <laughs> grandmas, you know, like they, they don't take it seriously. Or if they do, everybody wants to show you their impression of it, you know, which is, which is funny, but, um, you know, I, I was pretty nervous to tell people that I was taking part in it. I mean, that's a pretty funny moment. And I laugh because when I lived in San Diego, where I knew Tracy quite well, big supporter of race walking, and there's a big community there for it. And I would be at the track doing 
my running workout and there would be some of the race walkers from the San Diego community there doing, I mean, their speed work on the track. And it really opened my eyes mm -hmm. to one, just how hard they're working and how quickly they're moving. Um, and as you said, like you really have to focus on the technique. Whereas, yeah, I'm around the track. I'm like, all right, I know this is 400 meters. I know what, you know, my rhythm feels like. I won't think about it till I come back around. And you could see mm -hmm. just how focused they were on, on every step. And as I got to talk to some of them, you know, many of them, may have come from like a running background or they race walk and they run and and they would also joke too how you know they they caught a lot of you know shit for being a race walker or you know someone would be like huh that looks funny and then they would smoke them like around the track um you know <laughs> type of thing so i'm just trying to like picture you know picture that moment and how you know you just didn't like fall to the ground you know laughing uh, as you're yeah in the middle of the olympic trials trying to like pay attention to your form and like keep it keep a good rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a, a very funny moment, but very true because I had been thinking about it. Like it was just something that, um, you know, I think in this day and age of social media and me being so present and active on social media, uh, less so recently, I would say, uh, it was a real moment of being like, you know, I just want something private for myself. Like I, I want to try something, accomplish something and not have it be all for show or all for other people or worry about what people will think about it. Um, that was something that I could just do, you know, I could do it with friends. So mm -hmm. Pablo was in the, in the trials and that was just an amazing experience to have with a friend, Share that together, uh, particularly yeah. somebody who brought me into the sport and also just to, to not really have to worry about like how I'm packaging it for other people's consumption. I just wanted to do it for me. Yeah. Um, to pick on something that you just said about social media in particular, you said less so recently. Talk to me a bit more about that. Has that been an intentional shift away from sharing or just using social media more, consuming it? This is coming from someone who deleted his personal social media accounts two years ago, and we still mm -hmm. have one for this podcast to share new episodes, but I just deleted my accounts for Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of the above two years ago. So I'd love to just understand a little bit more about that from your perspective. Yeah. So in addition to being an athlete, which obviously doesn't pay the bills, you can imagine the lucrative uh, deals for race walking and, and duathlon. Um, they don't exist really. But so I also am a public speaker. And so I you know, travel the country, travel the world. I'm going to New Zealand next month to talk about my experience as an athlete, uh, talk about inclusion in sports, talk about a variety of things. But I speak to colleges, high schools, um, as well as corporate events and sporting events, right? So um, that's really how I make my living. And a lot of that comes through social media. Like those leads come from social media, from people seeing my materials, my educational materials. Um, but to answer the question of why I've backed off a little bit, uh, probably twofold. So one is that uh, my wife is not a huge fan of social media, but I am a huge fan of my wife and I would rather yeah. <laughs> spend time with them than, than be online concerned about like counts and followers. Right. So the part of it is just, I would rather be present in my family than, than be online. And also, uh, in the last three years, the world has become a really toxic place in terms of how transgender people's identities have been politicized in the United States and abroad and have really been used against people and in, in really damaging and, and hurtful ways. And now this shows up for me in so much as 
getting messages online. I mean, obviously there are trolls, there are haters, there are uh, anonymous people who want to inflict harm on people, right? That comes with the territory. But when people start posting like my address because they've seen my training long, my, my training runs, you know, and, and where I start and finish and have deduced sort of my neighborhood of where I live, right? Or, you know, some of those things where it's, it got a little creepy, and that's where, you know, I have to draw a line of like, I'm doing the social media piece because part of my whole experience as a person and as an athlete is I believe that visibility is a powerful tool for social change. Um, I also feel sport is a tool for social change and, and those things together, you know, create my platform. I want people to see me. I want trans people to see me and know that they are possible and what they hope and dream for is is achievable. But I also want cisgender people, people who are not transgender, to see me and to know that trans people exist, that we play sports, that we can have happy relationships and you know thrilling lives. And both of those things are important to me. And I can do that through social media. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't want to I don't think it's worth it for me to do it if it puts me in a position of feeling anxious, feeling nervous, mm-hmm. feeling worried, feeling unsafe. And that's really what what social media has become in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. And to zoom out a little bit more, it makes me think of, of other people like, I mean, just other people in general, even those who don't have a big following or a big platform who, you know, who feel that way and feel less seen and feel scared and then feel alone. And it becomes, you know, way harder for them to just exist in the world or find other people whose models that they can follow. Yeah. And, but I've also found that social media is probably my best way of doing advocacy as well. And so in the last three years, we've had many attacks on trans community, particularly trans youth in sports And I've been able to use my social media platforms to activate allies to call governors and ask for a veto, to reach out to different state offices or submit testimony when these bills are introduced in states across the country or to provide support for certain people or certain groups of people. Um, You know, I think it's also important that people understand that my allyship is intersectional. That I'm not just, you know, like a, that I am not a trans only space. Like I advocate for trans people, but me being trans and being a trans man has actually made me a stronger advocate and ally for women's rights. Mm-hmm. And it's made me, you know, recognize the discrepancies uh, in the experiences of myself as a white trans man versus any trans person of color or black trans woman who is subjected to discrimination, harassment, and violence. At, rates exponentially higher than I am. So, you know, I I want to use my social media to talk about those things, to talk about uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, to talk about what's happening in Iran and talk about, you know, social justice issues as a whole, because all of them are related. Yeah. I mean, social media really is this day and age a double-edged sword? Because as you said, it can be very toxic and dangerous, but at the same time, it can be the best way to mobilize people and to spur action and create awareness. And I think when it comes down to an individual level, so I've had a lot of these conversations with, with people and something that I've tried to navigate myself. It's like, how do you reframe your relationship with it or how you use it so that you can take advantage of it to do all of those things, but at the same time, not get crushed by hateful messages or just some of the toxicity that is going around. It's tough. And I don't know that it's going to get any easier moving forward. 
Well, it's certainly not going to get easier for me before the next election, and I know that for a fact. Um, the way that the trans identity has been positioned by uh, right-leaning folks has really been as a political pawn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to make this a political podcast, it, it, you know, I'm sure you have listeners of all different um, identities in terms of politics and all across the board. But, you know, the, the truth is that there are people and politicians who are actually using trans people as their platform in the same way that they are using uh, abortion as as their platform, right? And the, the very real harm that comes from that is that whether people are elected or not, right, whether those people who say that trans people shouldn't have access to healthcare or shouldn't play sports, um, whether they get elected or not, whether these bills that are introduced across the country that are trying to ban trans kids from sports, whether they get passed or not, the the bottom line is that as we have these quote-unquote conversations or this information gets out there, it, it has a really negative impact on the way that people think about and treat and talk about uh, trans people in this world. And I am one of them. And while a lot of the target has been targets have been children, they've been young people uh, trying to keep you know, middle school and high school kids out of playing sports with their friends in the gender with which they identify, or trying to keep young people from having access to the health care that they need, you know, as, as a trans kid. Um, and now it's moving into adults as well. So, you know, I, I think as long as we have politicians who are running with that as their platform, we will continue to see people have opinions about whether or not I deserve to have medicine or uh, broken bone repaired if I get in an accident mm -hmm. or, you know, any other any other or even be allowed to play sports with men. Like there are people who think that I shouldn't be able to do that. Um, the vast majority of people, I should say, don't really care because they don't think I would be a threat against men um, because that's how sexism works. <laughs> but <laughs> um but yeah, so I mean, I think that I, it's not going to get easier for me. And the way that I've really managed this is just to limit my consumption yeah. of social media. Um, I still go on there to post when I have something that I feel like posting. But I have found myself, you know, ready to hit that post button and been like, mm, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I don't need, I don't feel the need that I have to post every day or have a story constantly running or uh, try to get that engagement. You know, I love connecting to the people who follow me. I love engaging like that. Um, you know, for the most part, but at the same time, I think I've just, in terms of mental health, have needed to take a step back. Yeah. How do we, as listeners of, of this podcast, people who are aware of you and other trans people and the challenges that they're facing in politics, legal proceedings, et cetera, advocate for your rights as a human being, as, as a person who should have access to all of the same things that we all should have access to, um, quite frankly. And I know, you know, for you, it comes down to, you know, trans people. But as you said, like, this could be women's rights. Um, this could be uh, racial rights. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're heading there and that's scary as well. So as we head into this, this next election, you know, not to make this political, but hell, let's make it political. Like people who want to see equal rights for everyone, what's the best way to be an ally and advocate for that? 
Yeah. So, you know, in this election year, I think it, the biggest thing, and I would say for any election year or election cycle, is pay attention to your candidates, right? One, register to vote. Make sure that you are registered to vote if you are eligible and please go vote. That's like number one thing that our voices do matter. You know, there, I heard that there, I asked this question the other day about, you know, how, what would, what would someone at, an, at a voting rights organization say to people who were like, my vote doesn't matter. I'm just one person. It doesn't even, you know, there, no one's going to hear my voice. Um, there was an there was an election that was actually um, one person that that this person knew of that it was a local state election and they won by one vote. And so you know every vote every vote counts. Like it's sort of like running track, right? Seconds count or they wouldn't count them. <laughs> you know you have you, you have to make your voice heard. Um, the second thing is is do your uh, research on your candidates and then vote according to your values. Um, you know, vote like your rights depend on it. And that, that's how I have to vote every single time because my rights do depend on it. But clearly, you know, regardless of the, your level of privilege and who you are in this world, you have someone in your life. You have a mom or a sister or, uh, a, you know, an LGBTQ person in your life whose rights actually may be taken away if we don't vote in a certain way. And so do your research on the issues, see where the candidates stand and just be an educated voter. That's, you know, the other thing. And then I think outside of voting, uplifting the voices of the community that you are being an ally to. So there are two ways that this can really work. And, you know, I'm, I'm seen as a white man. So I navigate this world now with this white male privilege and, and assumed to be straight because I have a wife. So, you know, so I have this straight white male privilege that I've been walking around with, but I'm also trans. And when people find that out, that some of that privilege kind of goes away. But for those folks who do carry privilege in this world, to use their position, their voice, and be an ally to these other communities. And so, you know, you you do have, you specifically have power in, in bringing me on this podcast. You are uplifting my voice and I am grateful, right? That's a great move of allyship to give me this microphone and this airtime to talk about the things that are important to me. And we can all do that, whether it's reposting something on social media or having a conversation with someone and, and sharing information they told you is okay to share with other people. That's how we create change is by, you know, being in community with one another and imagining ourselves in that other person's shoes. Thank you for that. I think that's super helpful. And hopefully people listening to this, whether they share this episode, they have a conversation with someone in their life, they post something to social media. If they have an outlet, be it a newsletter, you know, weekly Zoom call, what, whatever it is to be able to just share this information. I mean, you know, share your experience and show people in their orbit, like, hey, this this is happening, you know, in, in our world. And it's an important thing. There's probably likely someone in your life who is going to be affected by it. And hopefully that's the wake up call that people need to take action. Yeah. And thank you for that. You know, first about the newsletter, you put a little blurb in your newsletter that went out to folks uh, after I was on the uh, Finding Mastery podcast. Yeah. And I can't even tell this you. conversation. Exactly. And I can't even tell you how many people reached out to me and said that they read that paragraph and, and like, made contact with me. And so that was amazing. Like th those things actually do make a difference. If you're wondering if your readers read them, they do. <laughs> I can tell you that's, that's true. Uh, you know, and the other thing is just like recognizing that, um, you don't have to have all the answers, right? And so like part of this is change happens when we have these one-on-one -on -one conversations or, you know, this, this conversation that can be shared with other people. But 
I think when we think about creating change, we think that we have to have a blue check on social media or be mm-hmm. an elected official or have a Nike contract and like to have that platform. But every single person listening to this podcast right now has a platform with their people, right? And whether that's your, you know, your your college roommates that you live with right now, or your coworkers, or your family, or your bowling group, you know, like who, your your run club. Any anyone listening to this has people close to them who appreciate and value their opinions and their thoughts. And so, the way that we have. The way that we create change can be from the top down. You can get an elected official, create a a new law, and we can have change. But to get that buy-in from the people, from from your peers, really comes from having one-on-one conversations. And so that's what I think is so important in terms of allyship is just to be able to, to talk about this, even if you don't know all the right words, like the, the Mm -hmm. intention, right? Because I know a lot of people are afraid to have conversations with me at times because they don't want to say the wrong thing. And I'm of the mind of like, you know, uh, and, and not every trans person is like this. So I should just like, I'm a case study of one, but I'm of the mind that I want our conversations to help you moving forward. Right. And if I can help ease, uh, the, easier discomfort in terms of asking a question or inform you about why it's not a good question to ask. Like I'm, I'm more than willing to do those things because I want other people to have a better experience. I'm glad that you highlighted that. I think it goes hand in hand with what you said about every vote counting. It's Mm -hmm. every person matters. And as we know, I certainly know just through what I'm doing with this podcast and my newsletter or anything, word of mouth is the best, let's just call it marketing tool that you could have. And Mm -hmm. it means a lot when you hear something from someone that you trust that is close to you and whose outlook you respect. I mean, you're more willing to to listen and be open to what it is they have to say versus a billboard or a random post on social media or mm-hmm. you know just something from a, a random person who's not in in your orbit. And you know, to your point, whether you have a big following or not, a public platform or not, those private conversations add up. I mean, you know, those very one on one interactions that you have with your running partners, with your colleagues at work, with your family, um, that spreads because then those folks can in turn talk to someone else in in their orbit. And it's like, that's how um, information gets out. But that's also how change is eventually going to happen too. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be something big, right? It doesn't have to be some big statement of like, you know, you don't have to show up to your morning run on on Friday and say, I support trans people, right? Like it doesn't have to be like that. But if you're running with your buddy and say, hey, I heard this trans athlete on this podcast lately, uh, you know, last week, and it was really interesting. Like, have you have you heard it? That can be how that change happens, right? And so, like, I, I, I say that so that listeners don't think that they have to go and, like, you don't have to go and wave Shout a trans flag. Jobs, yeah, but, you yeah. know, like, it doesn't have to be that. Although those things make a difference, right? Like, when I go into spaces, I am constantly looking for someone with a pride pin on or a rainbow flag or a trans flag or a shirt or, like, an equal sign or anything. Like, I'm looking at their pins on their backpack, their stickers on their water bottle. I'm looking at their tattoos. Like I'm looking for any indication of like someone who is a safe person in that space. I'm constantly surveying for safety. And, you know, 
I hearing somebody in my run club mention casually that they heard this awesome thing with a trans athlete or, Hey, did you hear Chicago marathon had a non-binary category? That's so cool. Like that would be a game changer experience for me in terms of my own comfort, but also Mm -hmm. in terms of allyship of like getting people to be thinking about the topics of gender and identity in a different way. And just by making it something that's not such a big deal, it doesn't have to be a political platform. It's literally just who I am as a person. And I'm also a runner and a triathlete and a duathlete and, and a race walker and all these other things, you know? So like, I love when people can integrate their allyship into the sort of the community that they're in. Mm-hmm. So many places I want to go from here, but one thing you said a few minutes ago that jumped out at me is Right now, you are perceived as a straight white man going through the world. And you Mm -hmm. were assigned female as your gender at birth and went through the world with that perception of you, outside perception of you, even though you didn't feel that is how you identified. But it's sort of the lens that you were able to look at things through. And Mm -hmm. I'm super curious now all these years later, having viewed things from all of these different perspectives, what are some of the the realities of of just that, of like being treated as a straight white man versus, you know, a, a straight white female um, or being perceived that way? Mm-hmm. That's coming across clearly at all. Yeah. So, you know, I think initially I was probably perceived as a a straight white female and then later on, maybe more androgynous. Mm -hmm. People couldn't quite figure me out. And then also uh, people uh, and I think regardless of me not dating anybody, people would use homophobic slurs against me in high school. Um, Even though I had never dated a woman, I had no interest in dating women at that time. And, you know, it never even crossed my mind. But that was what people chose to harass me about. Um, and you know, that probably speaks to their perceptions and stereotypes and, and also how I navigated and presented myself in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was a very stark difference. So when I was thinking about transitioning, I knew all of the things that testosterone would do. I was figuring out how I could participate in athletics still, you know, that part was a little unclear because I didn't see people do it before me. And I, I kind of had some expectations of what coming out might be like in the workplace with my family, just based on truly based on YouTube videos I saw of other trans people and their experience, uh, because I didn't really know a group of trans people in, in my daily life that I could ask questions to, or, you know, work through things with. But when I transitioned, what I was not prepared for was this, uh, social transition of being perceived as a, as a straight white man. And the, the difference was astounding. Like, I have distinct memories of running to November project workouts in New York city in the morning with a, with a woman who was harassed on almost every other street that we were on. And, you know, to the point by the, by the fifth time that somebody yelled at her, that I was jumping out in front of a car, you know, unloading on this guy. Um, and it, that to me was a really interesting, um, perspective because when I was perceived as woman, I, I was not harassed and I was not catcalled. <laughs> I was not that girl. <laughs> and so while I knew it kind of happened, I just, I think anything related to standing up for, uh, for my friends who were women before I kind of kept a distance from, because I didn't want people to perceive me as a woman. And so I didn't, I was much quieter about those, um, 
uh, inequalities, right? But I started to see them really clearly. I mean, it was it was simple things like going to lunch with my boss and her giving the credit card for our for our for our company and the check coming back to me as the only guy at the table, like just really really silly things that I didn't think actually happened or didn't pay much attention to. Um, even to the way that people listen to me or don't speak over me as much, um, that they value my opinion, that I could be standing next to a strong woman and I could say the same thing that she just said. And people are like, Chris, that's a great idea, you know? And so really like a lot of the last decade of, of my experience has been thinking about how I can frame this in a way that one lets people understand the differences that I've seen but also allows me uh, an opportunity to uplift women's voices and to advocate um, much more strongly for equal opportunities, equal pay. Like I remember, you know, growing up and how I was treated as a kid in sports versus how my brother was treated was very different. You know, like how I was encouraged or supported and how he was encouraged and supported in sports, very different experiences. And I think at the time, I didn't think about that. But now as a man, I'm thinking about those experiences and, and seeing all of the ways they were different. And that's pretty shocking. Yeah. As an athlete now competing as a man, do you notice major differences versus when you were competing in the female category? Um, you know, part of my experience in the female category was trying to have people not notice me, right? Mm -hmm. It was trying to be invisible. And I think that was a lot of my experience. So I was not as um, as forward about my participation. And in fact, like one of the ways that I realized that I'm trans was that when I won my first race in the women's category, I was too embarrassed to tell people because it was in the women's category. And that was a real moment that, you know, help me understand this perspective and, and understand my experience. What I, what I truly realize and, and see now is just the way that women aren't taken seriously as athletes. You know, when I was perceived to be a woman in sports, like say playing basketball, I took pride in kicking dudes asses. Like I, I mean, part of it was probably that I wanted to be a guy. So like I, I, I deep down inside knew this. And so I thought if I can ball with guys, then, you know, that, then I'm one of the guys and that's, that's great. But also there was this real pride in being a woman or, you know, someone, a girl who could beat boys in sports because people said that it couldn't be done because people assumed it wouldn't happen. And so that was always something that I wanted to be the best version of me, but I also wanted to be the best period when I was a kid playing sports. Um, and I think that, you know, now just, just seeing the conversations around athletes, uh, like Serena Williams, for example, you know, in the way that, um, people will find any way to minimize her greatness because she's a woman, or they will explain away any of her behaviors as being angry or being, you know, and a lot of it is racially motivated as well. Right. And, and we don't see that in, if a male tennis player exhibits the same behavior that she does, right? Or like, you know. I mean, yeah, great example, yeah. think of John McEnroe back in the day, right? I mean, you know, super intense, screaming at officials. I mean, he was mm -hmm. celebrated for that, where, you know, someone like Serena Williams gets frustrated by a call, might yell something out, and exactly to your point, I mean, you know, she's perceived as like, that's out of line for a woman, it's because she's a black woman. I mean, mm -hmm. all of these things that would would not be applied to. I'm just using John McEnroe as, as an example, but you know, a white guy in the same position. Yeah, and so much of this is is dependent on race as well. And I just want to keep bringing that up because you know what I've seen in 
So it's important to note that running has been one of the areas that has seen a lot of inclusion for trans people and non-binary people in sports. Uh, our marathon majors are introducing non-binary categories. We've seen running races have trans and non-binary categories, particularly trail and ultra races. And so we've seen a lot of progress in the running community, which is awesome. And at the same time, we've seen that when there have been problems for folks uh, with trans people participating, you know, largely this is the targets are trans women and right. they are trans women of color. And so when you have a, a black trans woman who is running track or is is playing any sport, you know, there there are multiple layers of discrimination that she is facing. It's not just transphobia, but it is racism and sexism and misogyny. And we see that black and brown women's bodies are policed at higher rates than white women. So like a great example, you know, Katie Ledecky wins the Rio Olympics by a full pool length. And most recently, I think crushed like another one of her records. She has 28 records, you know, top 28 records are Katie Ledecky's. She is an outstanding athlete and she's celebrated. But for any black or brown woman who achieves even a, a small amount of dominance over, and I'm talking about cisgender women, you know, they're questioned about, is that a man or a woman, right? Like, like, let's test her chromosomes. Like, you know, we've seen it with Castor Semenya. We've seen it with Serena Williams. We've seen it with Michelle Obama. I mean, even like people who are not in sports, that that the discrimination and harassment that comes to uh, to people of color, you know, specifically black and brown and indigenous women is exponentially higher. And, and they're really the people who suffer in the most in this conversation. Like, yes, when you're trying to ban trans people, trans people are, suffer. <laughs> but really what this does is put a layer of, of like um, of policing on people's bodies that is unreasonable and it's it's held to a white standard of femininity and so then we do have cisgender black girls in high school track who are questioned on their gender because they're a, a good runner right and all it takes in some of these states that have laws now is for somebody who got beat and somebody who's salty or some opposing coach to go i think that's a man and it will trigger an investigation of a young person in terms of looking into their pants at their reproductive organs, looking at their chromosomes, looking at their hormone levels. You know, it's just outlandish things. And all of this, again, is tied together. So I, I just have to keep calling that part out. Yeah, and I'm glad you did. And it's it's so sad because if you if you zoom out from it, it's all grounded in fear. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really what troubles me the most is you're right. It's largely coming from mostly white men and they are fearful of just being knocked from their position in sport in society what have you by people who don't look the same as them who have different skills than them and they feel threatened by that and yeah. I, I hope we can continue i mean you're doing a great job of this hopefully like this conversation and other means of doing a great job of of just hope quelling that fear a, a little bit and helping people realize we're all just people. Um, we're all, we're all different. You know, if there's anything that we share in common, it's that it's that we are all different. It's okay. And that that's what makes, I think makes life interesting, makes society interesting, makes sport interesting. I mean, if we were all of the same ability level, had all the same capabilities, I mean, sport wouldn't be that exciting, you know, but um, it's just, it's just really sad to like see this, playing out. But I'm grateful that there are people like you who are doing very strong advocacy for 
certainly trans athletes, but I think they're, I think it does like spread out from that um, because it does apply to, you know, people of color, women in particular. And I think that is getting lost sight of in this day and age. Yeah. And, and listen, uh, everybody, I'm going to be an old white guy someday. So I am actively trying to change the narrative on what old white guys are like. And if you are a white person listening to this, you know, like this conversation is not intended to say that that we are bad or doing something wrong. It's really just to raise awareness of the fact that this is happening, because I would only I only know about these experiences because I have had friends who told me about them. Mm-hmm. You know, this has been it. it I will say it every, every podcast that I'm on, if I get a chance, you don't know what you don't know. And that is such a key learning in my experience and something that I always want to drive home with people is you don't know what you don't know. But once you know it, then you have to take action, right? Like I didn't know about the differences in my experience growing up versus my brother's experience until later on talking to him about it and reflecting, right? I didn't know about the experiences of um, Cece Telfer, a, a black trans woman, D2 champion in, um, in track and field, mm-hmm. until she told me her experiences. And so that's really important to know, like you don't have to know it all as an ally and we, none, no one, none of us know it all, right? And, and so it's more about that constant quest to learn and do better um, than, than having all of the information at any time. Yeah. What's wild too is how many people just don't want to know. Um, I mean, you, you can present them this information. It's clear. It's right in front of them. They're like, I, I don't, I don't want to know that. Like they're, they're like, again, back to fear, scared to have their world rattled that, you know, there are people out there who are dealing with these challenges, who are being oppressed in different ways, who aren't getting the same opportunities. And, and if they don't pay attention to it, if they don't know, then it's not their problem. And and that's a problem. Like that's a, that's a huge problem. And that's why progress doesn't get made very quickly, if at all. Yeah. And it's really one of the magical things about sport, right? Is that when we have our running groups and our communities uh, that that we make friends with people through running that we would probably never talk to any other point in our life. You know, running has has introduced me to so many incredible people and people that I would never have crossed paths with. Um, race walking, you know, duathlon, same thing that that the people that I've met and we are all just people, you know, have I have more in common with you, with all of your listeners than, than I have not in common, Different. right? hundred percent. You know, I, and I think if we approach our conversations and our learning and our thinking from that idea of like, um, human first, right? Like, like respecting the humanity of the people that we're talking about and that we're talking to and know that I, you know, we have something in common through running and that that's the bridge that has really been able for me to make friendships and connections to people that I otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to, wouldn't have known about. And when I can see them as a peer, as opposed to, um, uh, opposition and, and not like competitor, but like uh, opposite of me, right? Like I, if I could see them as a peer, uh, being in community with them really helps to break down walls. Thank you so much for highlighting that. It's a major mission of what I'm trying to do through all of my work, certainly this show, because I've been around different aspects of the industry and different levels of the sport. I mean, I've competed at a high level myself. I've coached those athletes. I've also worked with beginners, had people come into the running store that I worked at years ago and say, I'm not really a runner. I only do 5Ks, you know, been in the ultra world, marathons, track and field. And it's interesting, like even within that, I mean – 
I'll talk to people who ran track and cross country in high school and college and start telling them about ultras. And that's like a whole like weird world. And I'm like, look, you share more in common with those people than you do different. It's not like they hate each other. They just don't understand, but it's not, it's not their world. So they don't pay attention to it. And through having a diversity of guests on this podcast, you know, whether it's the discipline that they're in, people who work in the industry, advocates, um, and athletes such as yourself, coaches, I, the best feedback that I ever get from people is like, Hey, I'm glad I listened to that show because I, you know, I learned about this whole other element of, of running that I didn't even know existed. And while, while it's not for me, I share commonalities with, with that person. Like it is a common language. I think that, that we all speak. And I do think why, you know, by and large, that's why the community is is so welcoming because even if, you know, you're, different height, different race, different weight, different body type, different gender, um, identify differently. If you find that common ground, I think that's what a a lot of people never find. But if you find that common ground, it's something that that you can share. You realize like, oh, like, all right, like, I, I don't like to race marathons, but you know, it's cool that we're at the track together and doing this, you know, doing this workout. Like we understand the experiences of, you know, doing a race. And, And I do think like running can be, a vehicle for, you know, just change in that way. Sport in general, as you described, can be a vehicle for change in that way and show that like, all right, we share more in common. And like, when you have that, you're less likely to hate on someone. You're less likely to take an opportunity away from them. And, you know, I think Mm -hmm. the the more that we can do that, um, you know, hopefully it spreads out to other aspects of society as well. Yeah. And I think that running, you know, running and cycling are so special because you're showing up already. You show up to a run group, uh, a group workout. You already have something in common with those folks, right? You have willingly put yourself in a position where you are going to maybe suffer, right? And that was a big part for me. I think that's really why I dove into sport is that controlled suffering uh, because I couldn't control the suffering I was feeling outside of of sport, but I can very much control how much effort I put in and be in charge of that when I was training. Uh, you know, the other thing is just like it through that, I think walls get broken down. The, yeah. When I was coming out to people, you know, and when I was thinking about coming out to people, I did a lot of that thinking on rides and on runs. And when I actually did come out to my teammates, I did it side by side. It wasn't afterwards, you know, with a beer, it wasn't hanging out at, at a post-race party. It was, we were in the middle of either a warm up or a cool down or, or an easy run or whatever. And I side by side felt that guard drop, right? Felt like I could communicate. I had running buddies that I knew their divorce. I knew what was happening with their kids at school. Mm-hmm. I knew about their, you know, the inner workings of their relationship with their boss, things that they would never have told me at a dinner party or a coffee shop. But because we were running, that guard got let down. And that's, and that you know, that was a game changer. Things. Absolutely. That bond. It was a game changer for me because I felt like I could come out to them because I didn't have to look at their face for the reaction. And I didn't have to guess what they were thinking. We could just keep moving forward together. And that was really, really a a special part of my process in in coming out and sharing with the community, my running community, that I'm trans. And and for me, that was an amazing way to do it because it just felt so comfortable. I mean, to me, that's really profound because you're sharing your truth with someone out on a ride or a run something that I imagine you've done dozens, if not hundreds of 
times together. And as you're going along, they're processing what you just told them. Nothing changes. You're still the, the same Chris that you were on the last ride. You're still keeping pace with them. They realize you're not trying to one-up them or that all of a sudden you've got this advantage over them. And I don't think anything more needs to be said after that. It's like, well, okay, that's like, that's some news, but nothing changed. And they don't really view you any differently. I, I imagine anyway, that would be the case. If I try to put myself in that person's shoes or in their, in their saddle, I mean, I don't know that I would feel any differently because you're the same person that I'd known for all the runs and rides and everything else that we've done together up to that point. Yeah. I think uh, my teammates had a, had a really awesome process of accepting me. And I first came out on my teams, actually, you know, my recreational running group, and I was coaching some athletes and people I would ride with my triathlon club. I came out to them before I came out at work, before I came out to my family, you know, I wanted to test the waters with them because I had such close relationships with them and spent so much time with them, you know, doing that doing those activities that I knew helped people break down barriers. And that, I, again, I was friends with people on that tri club that I never would have been friends with outside of sport. And so it was just, I, I knew that that was a place where I could test things out. And my teammates, you know, while I think they did pretty much go, okay, well, cool. Like I just have to change the way that I, that I talk about Chris now. Right. I, I, did want them to see me differently. Like I did want them to see me as a male athlete. I wanted them to see me as a man, as a coach who who is a man, right? Like that was important to me, but also it was kind of the best case scenario that nothing changed for them, right? They were like, we know you, we love you, we respect you, it's cool, right? And that was what really made it easy for me was that there were, you know, some moments, obviously, some trip ups and whatnot, but for the most part, I would say that I was the first trans person that everybody in that in that triathlon club met and most people in my running clubs met. And I can say that they did their own work. Like they went home, they Googled their questions before they'd ask me and they were really respectful in how they asked me questions and, and also really helpful in the way of asking me what I thought that I needed. Like I had one particular teammate who was like, how can I help? Like, what would be the best way if somebody messes up your pronouns, what is the best way for me to help so that it's easier on you? And that was such a huge move, like allyship move for me. You know, I can't even tell you how important it was for me to have somebody who was not me. If we were in the group warm up and somebody said, um, you know, said she or her about me for my teammate to rephrase it and say he. Right. And then it wasn't me because when I have to correct people on my pronouns, it was very embarrassing. It was like, you know, uh, actually I'm a guy, like I use he, him pronouns, right? Like those are awkward conversations for me, especially at the beginning of my transition. And to have somebody step in and do that for me just made it so much easier. Like I didn't have to defend myself. It didn't turn into me soothing somebody because they were embarrassed that they made a mistake, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, while, while those moments were hurtful, it was really, really helpful to have teammates who just, you know, dove in, like really, they were teammates, right? That's what teammates do. They support one another. They uplift one another. They um, are there when you're down, right? They pull you back up. And that's what it really felt like in that process. So sport was really, really important to me in that coming out journey. Yeah. To hone in on sport a little more specifically, when did it first 
come into your life in a meaningful way? Probably earliest memories were of sport. I mean, four years old playing t-ball. My uncle was the coach, co-ed teams. And from there, it was on. I mean, everything, summer days were always spent playing sports outside. We had an, an amazing lawn and all of the kids in the neighborhood would come to our lawn, which was basically the size of a soccer field to play whatever it was that we were playing that day. Um, and that was really because I was a little gender nonconforming kid. You know, I was a ver- I was a little tomboy from the very beginning and people, you know, like I, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't really understand how to explain how I felt about myself to other people, but I knew pretty clearly that I wasn't like the little girls in my class. Um, and also like, I wasn't like my brother, but you know, that I was unique individual. And so, uh, people always sort of looked at me weird and made comments about my gender from, from the earliest memories that I have. And sport was a place where that didn't happen. And so my earliest memories of playing sports were just like happiness of feeling accepted, of feeling like I belong. And then as I threw myself into sport, because I got that positive feedback, I became a better athlete. And as a better athlete and better leader, people adored me more. And I really got that great feedback loop through playing sports, whether it was, you know, basketball, volleyball, softball, all of any, anything that I played, I was always enthusiastic and, and, you know, one of the better players. And so sport, you know, from four on really became a central place for me. Was it, and is it in playing sports where you felt and feel most like yourself? Yeah. And I would say even like, um, sweating. <laughs> I feel the most like myself, like when I am uh, putting, uh, putting out effort is really like my favorite, uh, my favorite feeling of comfort, which is really kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, part of it goes back to that controlled suffering that like, I could control the level of output that I have. Um, and yeah, I think absolutely, the more I think about my experience as a as a young person in sport, the more I do realize a lot of it was about control for me. It was about controlling the way my body looked and felt. It was about controlling the way that people could interact with me. It was about uh, controlling my suffering, controlling my relationships uh, with my peers. Um, all of that came through sports. How has your relationship with sport evolved as you've gotten to know yourself better and then as you transitioned to become who you are now? Sport has always been there. Sport has been the lens through which I kind of viewed my transition. So I waited over a year and a half before I told anybody that I was trans because I was terrified I'd lose my ability to compete in sport. And I, at the same time, sport felt like one of the safer spaces for me um, despite having, you know, some unsafe moments, whether it was locker rooms or being yelled at during races or, you know, whatever it was. Um, I think, you know, along these lines of suffering, I think it's, I've had a really interesting, uh, revelation, uh, realization, I guess, uh, recently mm-hmm. that as I have become more comfortable with myself, my desire to suffer, uh, is is less right in in is less in sport and that's that's been really interesting that as i've been good with myself when i feel more more confident in my body in this world in my power as a person that i don't feel the same connection to that desire uh to make myself suffer and that you know part of it is like wow i was really punishing myself before for being the person that i am 
and, and I and I do think that that was part of it. It was it was like um, that was the way that I could control my my rage, my anger, my feelings of frustration of being misunderstood in the world. Mm-hmm. And as I've now become more comfortable with myself, my relationship to suffering feels different. That's a super interesting insight to mm-hmm. hear you describe that because I think about myself and other athletes that I know who have this incredible ability to suffer and push themselves. And that is a tremendous, if we want to call it talent to have as an athlete, because it can take you to a very high level or help you to realize your actual physical potential. But that that can be rooted in some insecurities and Mm -hmm. not feeling comfortable in your own skin or like you you are yourself and hearing you describe that i think of other people that i know who've arrived at a similar point to to you where they they got more comfortable in their own skin whatever that meant for them and mm. because of that they didn't feel this need to go out and thrash themselves on the run anymore or to okay what how much longer can I go, you know, in, in an ultra, um, type of thing. And I I don't know that I've ever heard anyone describe it quite so articulately as you just did. Yeah. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about it, but I think that I think the relationship has just changed. It's not that I don't feel the desire to, I just don't feel it in the same way. And, and I, and, and and I think that, and that makes a difference, right? It's not that it's not there. It's not that it won't happen. Um, not that it doesn't happen in training, but it is just a different feeling. And I actually feel pretty good about that, about that um, evolution of myself, because it, it means to me um, that I do feel a greater sense of belonging, not just in my self in this world, but also in my communities, in the running community, in the sports community. Um, you know, I've wanted for so long to be seen as the athlete and the person that I am and not just the trans athlete and not just, you know, um, not just any one thing, you know, I want to be able to show up in the wholeness of who I am and be celebrated for all of it. And I've felt a little closer to that in recent years. And although it's kind of slipping away, maybe I'll just have like the most um, audacious season in 2023 with all this anger, <laughs> this legislative anger. But, um, you know, like I, it, it just feels different now, which is awesome because that's the go, the goal and the hope for anybody, I think, is to continue to grow and evolve. Yeah. Well, and, and hearing you describe that, I think it comes down to what what is the fuel source? Are you being fueled by that insecurity or even some level of, of self-hatred? And it does that transition to love? Like you, you love mm-hmm. yourself more and doesn't mean you still can't suffer, but it's coming from a different place. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, you could still go into a race and be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to push myself. But, you know, it's not because I'm embarrassed about who I am or I'm unsure about who I am. It, it's just the opposite of that. It's because you're fully your self and you love that you have the opportunity to to do that um, and that you can push yourself in that way. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Mario, thank you for that framing. I've been talking about the, you know, about the suffering part for a while, but not connected it to being able to do that through the lens of love. And I spend so much time talking about love and joy um, 
you know, I think it's really important for me to counter a lot of the stereotypes and myths and misconceptions that we're hearing about trans people by just saying, like, I love being trans. I think it is a magical experience. I would not change my experience at all. I love the fact that I've been able to navigate this world, you know, being perceived as a woman and then being uh, a man. And, you know, I think I, I, I truly am grateful for this experience. And I often talk about trans joy and the things that are making me happy so that people know it's not just gloom and doom to be a trans person. It is some of that, but it's not the, you know, not the primary part of my experience. And to be able to show up at, at my next starting line saying, I am here and I'm going to push myself, not because I hate myself or because I'm insecure, like you said, but because I love myself and I want to do this for me. Um, that's absolutely how I'm going to show up at my next race. And I, and I thank you for that. Oh, you're, you're welcome. And, and I thank you because this is the first conversation that we've ever had. And I've listened to you on other podcasts, which eventually led to us talking right now. But one of the things that I really just admire and respect about you is how well, at least at this point of your life, you, you know yourself and you love yourself. And if I just zoom out at at large, I kind of look at, you know, society and people in my life, a lot of people never get there. Um, you know, whether they're, whether they're a cisgender, a transgender, white, black, tall, short, like there, there are so many people who have a hard time arriving at, at that place. And I mean, it hasn't been an easy journey for you to, to get there at, at all. And I think that's a great takeaway for anyone who's listening to this. It's like, you know, whatever it is, um, stay in it um, and, you know, keep working toward it and get to that place, like where you can love yourself for who you are, whatever, you know, whatever that means. And hopefully, you know, you surround yourself with people who love you for that um, and respect you for that. And I, I mean, I think that's what this is all about. And that's the place that we really need to get is just kind of more self-love and then more of a greater acceptance by the people we surround ourselves with. And that's so, so important, that last part of, of who we surround ourselves with. Like, you know, you've heard people say you are the the average of your five closest friends or, you know, whatever, uh, whatever that saying is. But I really, really believe that it has made a world of difference for me to be surrounded by people who want to lift me up as opposed to want to push me down so they can get higher. And I've certainly cut a lot of people from my life and am constantly on that um you know, on that cut list of saying, like, I, I just have done a better job in the last several years of releasing what doesn't serve me. And that is not easy. And it feels selfish at times. But the only way that I can show up and be my best version of myself and to do the most good in the world, which is really what I want to do, is by taking care of myself in that way. And having, you know, every negative thought that you have about yourself, every thing, I'm too slow, I'm, you know, I could never do this, I could never do that, I, I don't look like a runner, whatever it is, those things were put there by someone else. We don't, we, we are not born hating ourselves. We learn that over time, and that's because every the world is a hostile place, and that's just the the sad reality is that as going back to social media, it's a hellhole, you know, and it's so easy to yes, you'll see a couple of cute videos, but you will also get messages that you are not enough the way you are, and that you'll never be enough, 
as the person that you are. And those don't serve us. And so it really is about surrounding ourselves with joy and love and people who love to do what we do and who will uplift us. And that's the power of community. And that's, again, just to go back to why running is so amazing is that you have those run clubs, you form those relationships, and that's what can really sustain us through the hard times and really help us get to better know ourselves. Yeah. And, and I'll add to that. The stories that you tell yourself about yourself are what matter and are what are important. Because as you said, you know, too slow, too fat, too whatever, that's someone else casting that uh, upon you. And, mm -hmm. you know, you choose whether or not to believe it or ignore it. But the stories that you tell yourself are important. I mean, I do this as a coach all the time with my Wednesday night group in San Francisco. It's huge. We have a wide range of ability levels and people come onto the track for the first time and they'll say, I'm, I'm not a runner. And I'm like, well, who told you that you're here to run in my eyes, you're, you're a runner. And I've told people like, as one of my athletes, they're like, no one's ever called me an athlete before. Um, you know, people don't see themselves in that way. And, and I think mm -hmm. if there's another takeaway from, from this conversation, it's like, you will believe the stories that you tell yourself. Um, but you're also in charge of that narrative as well. And, um, you know, what's been clear to me throughout this conversation is, you know, you've really got to, to know yourself and, and know the story that you, you want to tell about yourself and how you want to move through the world. And I think that's a really powerful example. Yeah, unfortunately, it came through some negative press and some, you know, stories that were published early on that I uh, definitely felt out of control of my narrative. And, you know, people wanted to frame me as one specific thing or uh, because they had some internalized transphobia themselves as as reporters really put that in the story. And, and I found that to be you know really tough to take of here's the story that's supposed to be a profile, a celebration of me and who I am. And you're saying that I'm being deceptive because I won't tell you where I work because I'm harassed every day where I work. So, you know, like I've had experiences like that where it didn't feel safe to um, to be in that position. And that's definitely made me want to have back to control again, right? To control that narrative about myself. And I think we all want that, right? Everybody who's on social media wants to control the narrative about themselves because we all post our highlight reels. You know, like that's, if we're posting, we aren't often posting the picture with food on our face or, you know, where we spilled on our shirt. Like it's, it's the, it's the, the cute shots. And so that's, and the PRs, right? Like it's, it's very rarely, maybe runners do that better than anybody else. Talk about the struggles, talking about, some of the hard parts, but by and large, you know, as people, we really want others to have what we deem as like a positive view of us. And one of the greatest gifts that I have received in the last decade has been um, not caring what people think about me <laughs> as much as I did before. Right. I can't say that it's totally gone, but um, what other people's other people's opinions of me are none of my business. And that's why I try not to read the comments on posts and why I try not to read the comments on articles. And everybody's going to have an opinion and a lot of them are ill-informed. But my probably greatest compliment is that anybody who has spent time talking to me as a real person has said that I have exceeded their expectations. And so maybe I've set a, little, a low bar for myself, but what, <laughs> I really, but what I really love is when people, you know, there's this idea like never met, never meet your heroes, you'll be disappointed, right? Um, I always want people to feel like they are a better version of themselves from having a conversation with me. And, and that's really what my hope is.
Well, Chris, I don't know what my expectations were heading into this conversation. <laughs> uh, let's just say that you've exceeded them. To wrap this one up, I want to ask you a question that I've asked many of my guests. What is exciting you, Chris Mosier, most about running or sport right now, whether that's for yourself or for the community at large? I am just really excited to to be diving back into running. Um, as we talked about before we hit record, yep. I think it's marathon season. And in Chicago, uh, we just had Chicago Marathon. First time they ever had a non-binary category, which I think is just so awesome to see sport expanding its arms to say everyone is welcome. If you want to run, show up and run come on out. And that's really exciting to me. So, um, you know, New York City Marathon, there is literally nothing like that energy in, in New York City the whole week leading up to the marathon. I'm going to try to get out there and absorb some of that and then just really get excited to be back on the roads myself and get back out there. Um, it's been a hard comeback, on, in all honesty, a hard comeback, not just from the injury, but from COVID of just um, feeling uh, safe and motivated and financially secure to to register for these races, knowing they won't get canceled. And I think we've hit this turning point now and I think you know, so. 2023, I think it's full on. And so I'm just really excited to be back out there with people. Right on. I think that's a great place to wrap this one up. Thank you so much for your time. I've loved this conversation. I hope we can continue it, whether it's for this podcast or just in person. I'll be in New York as well. I hope we get some time to hang out that weekend. But thank you so much for joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much. And for anybody who would like to follow me, um, I'm at the Chris Mosier, T-H-E-C-H-R-I-S-M-O-S-I-E-R on all social media. And as I said, I'm not on there a ton anymore, but I am on there. So please connect to me there. Yeah. And I'll link to all of those in the show notes as well as your website, personal one. I believe you are also in charge of transathlete.com. So I'll link that as well in the show notes. And thanks again for joining me today here on The Morning Shakeout. Thank you. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to both New Balance and Arena for making it possible. The new Fuel Cell Rebel V3 from New Balance is everything that I enjoyed about its predecessor, but with a more supportive upper, a little more cushion underfoot, and a more durable outsole. What it doesn't have is much more weight, checking in at under 8 ounces, making it a great go-fast shoe for tempo runs, track workouts, and interval sessions on the road. The Fuel Cell Rebel V3 is available in both men's and women's sizes on NewBalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. If you don't have time or just don't want to go to the gym, Arena is a serious and super efficient strength training solution. Their product, which is a stealthy looking metal plyo box with a cable based resistance system, replaces a whole kit of free weights and bands. I've been using my Arena unit for a few weeks now and I don't have to think about it. I just find the workout that I want to do on the Go Arena app and it counts my reps, remembers my weight, and guides me through the workout. Try out an Arena unit today by going to arena.fit, that's arena.fit, and seeing if there is a unit that you can demo near you, or you can sign up for a virtual demo and see how much of a game changer Arena is. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He has produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. 
Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, also called The Morning Shakeout, at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 